mother's womb. And then here's our phrase. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So I think what she's asking is, I think she's saying this part is striking her as strange because in the context, he's also turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So what direction are things going here? The disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It's, you know, this direction. And up here, turning children to the Lord God. And here, she's saying, why wouldn't it be turn the hearts of the children to their fathers? Because who's to do the training and the discipline and correct foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child you know the father and mother to correct it from them and so i think what's striking her is that while these other things are going this direction it suddenly says here he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children but there's a very good reason that this says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and recall the part that she thought it, it might say you know hearts of the children to their fathers that's also found in the quote where this comes from. So somebody take us to that passage and talk to us about it. Okay, that'd yeah. be in Malachi chapter four. Yeah. And uh, let's see, starting, well, the last few verses, verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, a day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here it goes both ways, Scott. Yeah. yeah. And the angel only quotes one of these, but it's he, he's already alluded to this passage because back in Luke 1, he said, this child will come in the spirit of Elijah. Let's go back and look at that again. Um, yeah. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And so we go back here to that prophecy. I'm going to send Elijah and he will do that. So somebody briefly explain for us the relationship of John the Baptist and Elijah. Well, John the Baptist uh, is going to be Elijah, essentially. Jesus will say on a couple different occasions that he if you're willing to accept it he is elijah who is to come and so john is fulfilling malachi 4 5 and 6 uh when the lord said i will send you the elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the lord um that's fulfilled in in john the baptist and to, to quote that specifically um in I believe it's in Matthew, so Mark doesn't specify it as strongly, um, but it's in the Transfiguration account in Matthew where he, yeah, thank you, Matthew 17, where, and uh, all right, here we go. So they've just seen Elijah and Moses literally with Jesus on the mountain, and so they're wondering, wait, is that fulfilling Malachi 4? 
Uh, is this why the scribes say that Elijah must come? This is Matthew 17, verse 10. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So there we have this being fulfilled in John the Baptist. Uh, question number two, is John the Baptist Elijah reincarnated? Was Elijah Elijah and John the Baptist is actually just Elijah again? Well, no, because in, uh, in John chapter one, uh, whenever John is on the scene, he gets in a conversation with some of the Jews um, and starting in verse 19, uh, this is the testimony of John, that's John the Baptist, who was who, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they go on to say, are you a prophet? No. And then he quotes from Isaiah saying, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Okay. And of course, the reason they would have asked, are you Elijah? Is because they know about that prophecy. Elijah will come first. And he says, no, I am not. He's not actually Elijah. But Jesus said, it's talking about John the Baptist. So in what sense is John the Baptist not Elijah? And in what sense is John the Baptist Elijah? He's not Elijah and that he's literally John, you know, Elijah reincarnated or something like right. that. The Bible never teaches reincarnation or that people come back as someone else. The Bible teaches resurrection, but it does not teach reincarnation. Right. Um, and he is Elijah in the prophetic sense. Um, there's other passages in the Old Testament that talk about, uh, I'm going to send you David again. And it says, just says David. Uh, I know there's other passages that talk about the son of David, but there's other passages like in Ezekiel that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you David. And those are fulfilled by Jesus. Excellent. Jesus is not David reincarnated. He's Jesus, but he's coming in the spirit and power of David. He is the son of David taking the throne of David, and he's the new king like David was, except far greater. And so same thing with John and Elijah. Uh, he fulfills that role, but he's not literally Elijah. And just a couple more points, and then we'll move on to our second topic today. Uh, in Malachi, this is not the only reference here to the forerunner, to John the Baptist. Back in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. Uh, and there are some real striking, in, in Luke, uh, the wording there probably really helps out because the game, Gabriel doesn't say he is, you know, reincarnated Elijah. He said he'll come in the spirit and power of Elijah, which is a, a kind of similar to what uh, Stephen just pointed out about David and the Messiah. Curiously, if you go back uh, in the Bible to Kings, when Elijah first shows up, what does he look like? He's dressed like Elijah. He's got the, the camel's hair and the leather belt. Um, and so that's very similar to Second Kings chapter 1, where uh, you have the king inquiring, who is this guy? And then he tells him what he was wearing. He says, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Yeah. Second Kings 1 and verse 8. 
They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Um, so John is signaling from the time he comes on the scene that, yeah, I'm, he's sending the Elijah overtones even by what he's wearing. Yeah, so you got the hairy man wearing leather uh, about his waist. I thought it even had camel's hair, but maybe not. Um, just... My translation says a garment of hair. Okay, a garment of hair. There we go, a garment of hair cloth. And uh, yeah, a garment of hair and a belt of leather. Of course, John the Baptist would wear camel's hair in that. All right. And so then let's just finally, anybody have any thoughts on this expression, turn the hearts of the fathers of the son, children, and turn the hearts of the children to the fathers? True. Uh, before you get to the other topic, though, I do, I want to respond to a, a, a question that did come in on a comment, but close out this one if anyone else has anything else first. Anybody have any comments on that, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers? There are a couple passages in the New Testament that seem to talk about part of repentance and turning to the Lord is also rest restoring some of the natural affection that ought to exist in a family. Um, there's a couple of passages in Romans chapter 1 um, in verse, let me pull it back up here, Romans chapter 1 and verse 31, where it talks about word spiral of sin, there are some who are without natural affection. Um, and disobedient to parents as well, as mentioned in the previous verse in Romans 1.30. Also in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, it mentions disobedience to parents. And in 2 Timothy 3.3, 3, it talks about without natural affection again. And so I don't know if some of this may be the idea of Jesus came to restore people to God, but then also to develop love for neighbor and even love for your own family where it's lacking. And um, restoring the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers is something that ought to be there. And when it's not, it's something that God wants to be restored. And that's something yeah. we certainly need today. And I'm sure they needed it on some level then as well. Yeah, there's, there's a series I do on parenting that I've done or a good bit around the Eastern half of the country. And in that, a lot of what I'm doing is turning the hearts, you know, helping remind fathers of their obligation to their children and then sometimes ending with talking about children you know having their hearts turned toward their parents and stuff uh it's a really important really important thing family is so foundational uh the family is established before government and before the church it's right there back in genesis 2. all right uh let's get to this uh next question go ahead drew and then we're going to get to some material that stephen has Okay, so uh, Joe uh, asked the question referencing uh, Acts chapter 8.22 about the word perhaps, my translation, it says if possible. Uh, the context is where Simon the sorcerer uh, became a Christian and, and, and he noticed, he, he observed how miraculous gifts were given by the laying on of hands by the apostles and he asked for that. He wanted to pay them money for that. Uh, power and that gift that, that they had that no one else had. And so I'll read 22. Peter speaks back to him and says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, or perhaps the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So the question is, can you explain that word perhaps? Good. Anybody got a comment on that? 
I'm going to pull up the interlinear while you guys are talking. Yeah, I think that's really interesting um, to think about that idea and a couple of thoughts that I have on that. Um, that's not a unique phrase just to Acts 8.22 when talking about God forgiving um, sinners. Uh, also in the prophets, that comes up various different times. Um, there's one in Joel chapter 2 and verse 14. But one that I think is really helpful is in uh, Zephaniah chapter 2. Um, and he says in uh, Zephaniah 2 in verse two or verse three, uh, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Um, so there's that same idea there. I think that that idea goes with the idea of humility really well. And Zephaniah two verse three shows that um, feeling like you're, you're owed forgiveness by God I think is incorrect. Whenever you look at the, you look at the, the grand picture of the Bible. Uh, and that could be maybe what Peter is saying to, uh, or what, uh, yeah, Peter is saying to Simon, um, that you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to repent. You need to change. You need to seek mercy from the Lord. But just because you do that doesn't obligate God to have to forgive you. God will, God forgives based on his mercy and his grace and his character. But that entitlement feeling I think is wrong. You need to humbly seek the forgiveness from God. Yeah. And if possible, I mean, we can clearly rule out that it's not like, well, maybe God's able to forgive you. Maybe he's not. I mean, obviously, God is able to forgive you. I wonder if it's more kind of like you were indicating, Jonathan, that the idea is um, it's contingent on Simon's repentance <laughs> that uh, well, if, you, if you do repent, God will forgive you. But pray to the Lord that if possible, this can happen. He's not doubting that it that God is able, um, but it is contingent on Simon's repentance and uh, turning back from uh, going back into his old ways. Um, you know, it's hard to put the old man to death, and Simon has clearly not completely gotten rid of uh, his desire for power, his desire for prominence that he used to have when he did his magic tricks. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to have much to offer here other than it's kind of interesting to look at this and I haven't looked at it before, but it's translated a number of different things. Who then, who uh, like this kind of an idea, and so then accordingly, uh, surely then so, depending on different constructions and stuff. And as you go through, here, here's the word, wherefore by their fruits you'll know them. If I cast out devils then the spirit of the god has come upon you uh who then can be saved um uh here's one of my one oh no doubt the kingdom of god has come upon you strangely the same word translated perhaps in acts 8 is translated no doubt in luke 11. uh so i'm not sure all what's going on there but there's Apparently, some reason they translate it perhaps there because almost every translator translates it that way that I looked over. But I don't know where to go further on this uh, because uh, this is the first time I've looked at it. Yeah. Good question. It is also, yeah, it is also kind of interesting that uh, I'm thinking about the king of Nineveh in Jonah chapter three, um, where he calls on the city to repent, calls them, you know, after Jonah's half-hearted preaching, um, 
he says in verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Yep. Um, that's not a note on the technical word, but uh, just the sense of it, that there are times where, well, if possible, you know, we want to be uh, forgiven, we want to uh, get back in a right relationship with God, and certainly that it's not saying anything about God's power, but it seems to be more contingent on our response. All right. Uh, good question, Joe. Uh, and I'm sorry, I didn't have any more on that, but thanks for the comments. Uh, and we've got here some other notes. Uh, Patrick says, good point, Stephen. At one of those points, I'm not sure which one was a good point. <laughs> At least one of them was. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just take it in general. <laughs> uh, CJ says family relationship is really important. This is right. Uh, let's move on now to some material uh, that Stephen's going to be uh, sharing with us today. Go ahead, Stephen. Uh, yeah, so something that has come up in, in just different studies that uh, I've had and even some of, some of my own questions and a really important foundational question is how can I know the will of God? I'm just going to share my screen here, put these points up as we go, um, because this is foundational. If we're going to talk with anybody about God and about how we come to know him, how we serve him, we have to agree on this point, <laughs> uh, because if I think I can know the will of God in a different way than you think you can know the will of God, we're pretty soon going to reach an impasse, probably, where I'm saying, well, no, this is what God said, and someone else saying, no, but... I God says this in some other way. So we have to kind of narrow down, say, okay, how is it that God speaks to us? How can I know his will? And so what I'd like to do for just a few minutes uh, is talk about ways we can be misled first and kind of narrow down, like these are not reliable ways of knowing the will of God. And then, of course, come back to the positive end and say, these are ways that we can know God's will. So you mean there's more than one way? It's not just the two of you arguing. There's there's yes, other yes. way. <laughs> yeah, three or four different people come up with different answers to that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so just going to use a couple of biblical examples as we talk about this. One way that we can be misled in thinking we know the will of God is to simply assume that we know what God would want. Oh, that sounds good to me. One example of this is actually from a very good man, from David and even Nathan the prophet. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have David wanting to do a good thing. He wants to build a house for God. And he plans to do that. And um, he, uh, he says to Nathan the prophet, uh, this is uh, 2 Samuel 7 too, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan says to the king, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What does the Lord say to Nathan later that night? Did I say that? No. Yeah. He, he comes to him and says, and it's not so much a rebuke, but there is a correction there. This is, actually, he's not going to build a house for my name. His son will build a house for my name. And there's a whole lot to the Lord's answer. This is one of the fun, foundational passages in the Old Testament. But what's interesting to me about this passage is that even a prophet of God, who God did at times speak through, could not just assume what God's will was in this situation. And there's a lot of times where you're talking with somebody and they say, well, how do you know that's what God wants? Well, that, 
it that just seems like what God would want, you know? I mean, and that's just a really dangerous way to think. And again, here, even Nathan and David could not just assume what God wants. Um, and so we have to, how much more do we, who are not prophets of God, have to be careful um, with not just assuming, oh, it sounds good to me, so it must sound, it must be good to God. You have thoughts on that one? So another way that we can be misled um, is by interpreting favorable circumstances and thinking, well, since this worked out, then it must be the will of God. Um, a helpful example of this is also in the life of David. Um, if we back up and see uh, a couple of times when David was being chased by Saul, what did God give David the opportunity to do? Take him out. Yeah. In 1 Samuel 23 and in verse 7, um, you have, uh, or excuse me, this is actually before this. This is uh, Saul thinking that he's got David. Uh, David flees into the city of Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Had God actually given David into his hand? No. Nope. It seemed like a, a, a bad move for David to trap himself like that, but that wasn't a sign from God that God was wanting Saul to do that. In the next chapter, uh, Saul flees into a cave and who happens to be in the cave? <laughs> There's David and his guys. Saul's relieving himself and David has the opportunity to take him out. But what does he do instead? If I'm David back in there in the cave and I'm like, okay, hopefully he won't see us. Wait, somebody's coming in here. Wait, it's Saul. What he's occupied looking the other direction obviously God wants me to kill him right now. And that's what the men of David say in, in 1 Samuel 24, 4. The men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So they say, Yahweh said this day was going to come and here it is. They assume that this favorable circumstance means it's God's will. But what does David know? I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointment. That's exactly right. And he has one more opportunity two chapters later in chapter 26 and verse 8. They I add to in. that before you go there, Rolf, yeah. that what Scott, you're saying, so the answer to the question is he knew the Lord's word. Yep. Because right. why would he not, why would he not go against, um, why would he not take the uh, Lord's anointed one? Because that was a command. You don't do that, right? Yeah, uh, David knew that that was, that was uh, the, the Lord's will, was not to speak evil of a ruler of your people and not to stretch out your hand uh, against the one that the Lord had appointed. And so the point you're making is here's the circumstances it appears, well, wait a minute, the Lord is now giving us new information, uh, but that's an assumption. That's right. Uh, just because you have a perfect opportunity to do something doesn't mean it's mm. the thing the Lord wants you to do. And in chapter 26, same or a different situation, but same principle. They go into the camp and everybody's fast asleep. And again, Abishai says to David, first Samuel 24, or excuse me, 26, verse eight. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed 
and be guiltless. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down to the battle and perish. The Lord forbid I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so David knows God's will and he does not allow favorable circumstances to teach him otherwise. So the question come in from Joe, uh, could David kill him and be right with God? So you already answered the question, right? Yeah. Oh, David could. clearly sees no, uh, he could not kill him and remain guiltless. So this and is really important. I, Go ahead, Scott. Just a side note, uh, it works the other way too. Unfavorable circumstances doesn't mean that God's dis displeased with you. And that's kind of what the book of Job is about. And I mean, Paul on his missionary journeys, if he took unfavorable circumstances as a sign that he shouldn't be spreading the gospel, he would have quit a long time ago. That's right. And in fact, in some of his letters, he says, you know, I wanted to see you, but Satan has hindered me. You know, there's times where he knew it wasn't God giving the unfavorable things. It was Satan. So we just need to be very careful Amen. about interpreting circumstances. We know that God does answer prayers and God does at times alter circumstances, but it's not up to us to determine the will of God from those things. Let's put so it this way. way. Read the Bible instead of reading bird entrails or signs in the sky. You know, or he leaves. Read the Bible. Yes, that's right. Yep. So another uh, time in David's life when there was uh, something that was not God's will um, is when he was bringing the ark to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have this very enthusiastic worship parade that's happening as they've got the ark and they're coming. And if you were observing that parade and seeing the people dancing and the, them all just worshiping God, what would you perhaps have thought about those people? God's got to be happy with this. Like, look at the enthusiasm, look at the devotion, look at the zeal that these people have. And yet, in the midst of all that, you've got Uzzah, who reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And as we know the story, the Lord strikes him dead. No amount of enthusiasm prevents the wrath of God from lashing out when someone does what was specifically prohibited. God had told them how to transport the ark and they ignored it. And no amount of religious zeal was going to overcome the fact that they did the thing that they should have known better not to do. And so zeal without knowledge is something that can be deadly spiritually. Paul would talk about the Jews of his own day. He says, I, I, I love them. I wish that I could be accursed for them. But they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And that's a deadly thing. Um, and a lot of times people think that if they find a group of people who are just really sincere and really excited about the Lord, that that must indicate this is who's really serious about God. This is who's really following God, but it's not necessarily so. And I'll say the same thing on the other side, or go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, well, you were about to say it, so I'll just let you go ahead. Uh, well, just the other side of it is a knowledge without zeal is also deadly. <laughs> just as we're talking about this, uh, if we are very diligent to study the Bible and know exactly what God says. And then we're kind of ambivalent about it, kind of like, 
yeah, we know what he says, but we're not very excited about it. That, that can also be deadly. And so we need to, it's not just about having a head knowledge. Um, and it's not just about being zealous. It's about knowing what God wants and then being zealous for what he's actually said. Um, so Aiken, or not Aiken, well, he's also a good example, but Uzzah uh, is a helpful example of this. Other thoughts on, on that example, zeal without knowledge. Remember, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, I truly thought, you know, that I should do all these things, and I did. Yes, exactly. And I didn't make it right. Uh, God turned him around, but uh, he was in the wrong, even though he thought he was in the right. Another example uh, is misled church leaders. And one helpful example of this is Apollos, who's a good man. Uh, if you go over to Acts chapter 18, we're introduced to Apollos with a pretty nice resume. Uh, what are some of the things that it says about Apollos there in Acts 18? He's a very eloquent, eloquent speaker. He's yeah. competent in the scriptures. Yeah, so he really knows some of his stuff, but what was he short on? The John. He thought yeah. accurately about Jesus, but only knew the baptism of John. That's right. So y'all can read about him in Acts 18 verses 24 and following. And I appreciate him because he could have let his own eloquence and his own knowledge kind of make him resistant to correction. He could have thought he was kind of above that. And when these blue collar workers approach him, Aquila and Priscilla, these tent makers, he could have said, who, who do you think you are to correct the great Apollos? You know, but he listens to them, Drew. Yeah, the reason I, he could have had that attitude because it says he was from Alexandria, the libraries of Alexandria. He was a Jew from there. And so he was like very well educated and, and where he gets some of his eloquent speech, I guess, comes from. So he, he could have had that ad attitude that he's, what are you telling me something? But he yeah. didn't. That's right. And so Apollos had taught a lot of people. He had done a lot of good work. And a lot of times people will look at church leaders and say, if they're eloquent, they can preach a really good sermon really zealously. If they've got a big following, if they've got a lot of scriptural knowledge, I mean, they're not, you know, just scripturally illiterate. They may think, well, that, that's got to be right. How could, how could a person that smart be wrong? PhD right. after his name. Right. <laughs> And they might be right on a lot of things, but if they disagree with what the Lord has taught about something, then they're wrong on that thing, and they need to be corrected. And the thing about it is, at the end of Acts 18, it doesn't just affect Apollos. At, when we get into Acts chapter 19, what does Paul find when he comes to Ephesus? Others who just knew about the baptism of John. He finds 12 guys who only know the baptism of John. Where do you think they learned that? Probably Apollos. They learned it from Apollos. And yeah. so Apollos was wrong on something, and his wrongness affected other people too. Now, thankfully, the Lord opened doors for them to be corrected. And just like Apollos was teachable, so were the guys that Apollos taught. Thankfully, some of his humility apparently rubbed off on them too. So they all are li they listen and are receptive when Paul corrects them or when Aquila and Priscilla corrected them. Uh, and so I appreciate that. Scott, did you have a comment? Yeah, just warning. Anytime we get to the point where we think we don't need to listen anymore, mm. we've just proved ourselves wrong. Yep. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. It doesn't matter if we're right, even <laughs> once we get the wrong attitude, uh, we're already wrong again. The last example I'll use is one that we've referenced periodically in these uh, podcasts is uh, the example of Naaman and the idea that we can be misled by our feelings and expectations. Uh, when Naaman is presented with a cure for his leprosy, his terminal disease, he almost turns it down. Why is that? Right. Hold our thoughts. Yeah. I really thought he was going to do it a different way. When Elisha comes to him, he just sends the messenger out to the door and says, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, in verse 10, uh, verse 11, it says, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He's like, Besides, these are, this is a dirty river. There's better rivers than the Jordan. So many times I encounter people who believe that their, th their feelings about something or their expectations about how something should be is really the way that they indicate uh, or that they believe that somehow the Holy Spirit is speaking to them through their feelings to indicate what really is the will of God. And I'll tell you, you can tell what Naaman's feelings are telling him right now. His, his feelings were saying, ain't no way that, you know, this is the way to be healed. You know, this is ridiculous. I thought that he was going to do some great thing. And it takes his servant speaking up and saying, hey, shouldn't you go do that? And he does. And guess what? The thing that he thought was maybe the least likely way for God to heal him was exactly what God wanted him to do, even though it was humble, it was unexpected, it was not what he would have guessed. That was the way that he was going to be healed. And so, when, so whenever you encounter somebody that says, oh, I just can't believe in a God who would, and whatever comes next, it's like, we just have to do a heart check right there and say, God is not my pet. God is not here to serve me and do what I think he should do. I'm here to serve him and to seek his will. And so who am I to interpret my own feelings or my own hunches or my own circumstances and say, well, that, that must be what God wants me to do. My feelings are very manipulatable. My thoughts are here and there. And so I can't trust those things. I've got to come to something much more objective if I'm going to know the will of God. Thoughts you guys have or things that you guys would add to this list of ways we can be misled on knowing the will of God? It's a good list, but let's turn here now to, so how can we be led? Yeah, that's right. So as we think about being led to know the will of God, there's several ways that God has revealed his will to us through the word. The first and foremost thing we need to ask is what has God said? Um, a lot of people ask the question, what would Jesus do? Well, the thing we need to ask sometimes is what did Jesus do? God has revealed to us already a tremendous amount of information. And in Ephesians chapter three, uh, we have the blessing of reading what the apostles and prophets wrote that God revealed to them. In Ephesians chapter three, uh, Paul says, uh, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Uh, this is so, so important, is God speaks 
through his apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament. And that is always the place we have to begin with what has God said? How has God spoken? He's spoken through his son, Jesus. We look at those in the gospels and he's spoken through his apostles and prophets that we look at in the rest of the New Testament letters. Another question we can ask to determine God's will is what has God shown? Is there some kind of precedent that God has set? Because the Bible doesn't always answer my questions as specifically as I might like sometimes. But there are times where we can look at the principles God has shown or the examples that God has shown in the New Testament and say, well, it doesn't say something specifically about this, but we can take what God did say to them and apply that type of thinking to our particular situation. In John chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, Jesus has just washed the apostles' feet. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And Jesus didn't just mean, okay, the thing you have to do is to put water on other people's lower appendages. Like, that's the, he's given an example what Jesus did to them was an example of service that they needed in that day and time. We can take that example and do what with it? Emulate it. Emulate and say, okay, what are the needs now? It may not be washing stinky feet, but there's other ways of humble service that I can be involved with now. And that's the important question for me. And then the, the question of principle. Again, sometimes God answers our questions in a very indirect way in scripture. It's interesting to me in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is being shown that the Gentiles are accepted without keeping the law of Moses, without circumcision. In that chapter, God showed him what kind of vision. What did, what did Peter see uh, when he was there on the housetop? Was it a vision of Gentiles and how he should accept Gentiles? What did he see? Uh, food that he shouldn't be eating under as being a Jew. Right. And God said, or the voice said in the vision, you know, what God has called clean, do not call common. And Peter realizes later in this whole sequence of events, God wasn't talking about food there. <laughs> he, he was talking about people. He was talking about the Gentiles. And so there are times where God has given principles that we need to apply. And this is such an important thing in the New Testament because there's times where we might have a question about, well, just as an example, what, what does the Bible say about gambling? Or what does the Bible say about how I should drive my car or things like that? Does the Bible say anything specifically about those types of things? Well, no, especially with like cars and the internet and other questions that come up, those things didn't exist then. But has God given principles that apply to those things? Absolutely. And so we need to be very careful with how we handle the will of God and that we're asking, what has God said? What has God shown me how to do? And what principles has God given? Jonathan? Yeah, a comment from Dan uh, on Facebook. He said, even if we look at the word, we can be misled by false interpretation. This is where knowledge that was brought up before comes in. We have to look at the word for guidance, not just for justification for what we want. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So as we think about this, I, I'm not, we won't go through all of these final points. We're about out of time, but I wanted to 
just put this out because this is a conversation that is just so important. And it's easy for us to be misled in a lot of different ways if we're not reading the word and trusting that it is through the reading and through the working out of God's word that we can know his will. Um, it's not through my personal experiences. It's not through what I feel ought to be right. And it's not just what my preacher says. I mean, we live in a day and age in the information age where anything you want to believe, what can you find? You can find it somewhere. Somebody find... tickle your ear. Yes, you can find some preacher, somebody who claims to be an authority on the word of God who will teach He'll preach it white or black. He'll preach it whatever way you want. And you can probably find somebody with some letters after their name, PhD, whatever, who, has, who is smart and, and will still support your position. And that's simply not how we determine the will of God. Uh, we have to be so careful as we handle the word of God to really know his will. And we do have to have a sincere desire to know God's will. And to not come to any Bible question with the attitude of, well, I've already really decided what I want to believe on this question. And now I need to figure out how I can use the Bible to support my position, which is how it's really easy for any of us to, to think. But we have to come to the scriptures saying, how can I know God's will? And I'm willing to take the Bible wherever it leads me and whatever conclusions it brings me to as I study it carefully. Other thoughts you guys have, questions on that? Good stuff, thank you, Stephen. Thank you guys, I hope this is helpful for our listeners as well. And if you guys have um, other thoughts on this, uh, of course, we're always looking for questions uh, on the program. Uh, if you have Bible questions, or if you'd like to talk with us further about how you can know the will of God, uh, please, uh, we'd love to hear from you and um, uh, connect in some way. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Stephen. And thank you to our audience. Uh, we had a couple of questions that were uh, directly from the audience today. So thank you guys for those. Uh, and like Stephen said, if you have any more questions about any of the topics we discussed today or any other topics, you can submit those to us uh, at BibleQuest.tv. Um, before we close out, Scott, do you have something you need to say? Yeah. CJ gave a comment we didn't get to. Back on uh, Stephen's first chart, where what we think and what we expect, the we shouldn't just go by that. CJ mentioned Jesus is the least likely way God chose for us to be saved. Mm -hmm. Not from God's point of view, but from man's point of view. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you know, basically what mind of man would ever have figured this out? Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> the Lord to come flesh and die on a cross. Uh, people were, that's not what any, that's not what they were expecting. No. Good, good yeah. point. Foolishness in the in the eyes of the Greeks. Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks for that, CJ. And thank you guys for your uh, comments and discussion today. And uh, that will wrap us up for this week. And Lord willing, we will be back next Tuesday. So we hope to see you all then. Thank you all.